0: Hello, I'm Carrie Gard, and welcome to Tea Time with Tech Marketing Leaders.
1: The result that I want is a customer whose job gets done as a direct result of their involvement with me. But I, My part is to help them execute that job.
0: Welcome back to the show. I'm so grateful you're here. So lovely to have you. I have a really interesting conversation this week, and I actually had the conversation a few weeks ago and I bumped it up because it's very timely. It's very timely in the way that the sales process is shifting. And I don't think it's shifting fast enough, quite honestly. I'm still getting emails. I got one last week, got an email last week from somebody reaching out saying, we have this product that can do these things for you. Here's an example report. Wonderful. The report looks great. Actually, I am vetting my current system right now this is very timely. So I asked him a few questions in regards to what the product can do in terms of the pain that we're having of what we needed to solve. And he said that it can do it and that he could show me on a call. And I just said, no, that's just good enough to know that you have the feature and the functionality that this thing can do what it says that you're saying it can do. I'm currently looking at a vendor that I've been with for the last five years who also says that they're rolling out a new feature that can do what I, what I needed to do. And I need to make sure that I give them the proper due diligence because we have five years of data with them. So I can't move just yet, but great to know that your product is out there. I'll be in touch. You know, if I need to, you're on my short list is what I told him. You're on my short list. If I need to vet a new, a new vendor. And then he emails me back and says, why don't we jump on a call so I can show you what this can do and so that you can make a better decision. And I was like, dude, I, I know what I'm doing. I know what I need to do like now you've just lost a customer because you're not listening. And so much of what Marcus talks about is that active listening piece, the sitting in the questions, the understanding of the pain, where the pain's coming from, where the hesitation's coming from, where the risk, where they feel like their risk is coming from, right? Our job as sellers is to mitigate risk, not reduce it completely wash it away. There's no risk here, right? And if there is risk, we're going to absolve it and it's all good. And he tells a wonderful story about, how, of, and a great example of that. Marcus Cockey joins me to walk us through how he sees the buyer's journey. And I think this is really important and really timely for all the reasons why I just said it. And I think I've had this conversation so many times about the customer journey. You can actually go through my show, um my podcast and see that a couple headlines that actually say customer journey in the headline to find them and I and I'll post them in the show notes too. But this was different. It was a different perspective and it felt very actionable and it felt very clear and it really breathed life into the possibility. The customer journey feels so cumbersome right now because it doesn't feel linear and it feels all over the place and it feels like people are have buyer's remorse and are so scared of making a decision. And he breaks that all down for us in a way that feels like, oh, we can overcome those things in a really intentional way and we can do it upfront and we can build that trust early and often and we can keep showing up with it and we can be in it for the long haul and we can build a really, Thoughtful, wonderful customer base. It's so good, y'all. It's so good. I literally took, I took uh five pages of notes through this call. And I probably could have taken more, but I just got so sort of sucked in at some points I stopped taking notes. And then I went back to taking notes. Such a good conversation. Real quick about Marcus. Marcus revolutionizes your sales performance, boosts your career, and cultivates lifelong customers. With his innovative strategy for selling complex, high value solutions to mid-market enterprise clients, Marcus can help you accelerate your success and achieve your goals. Through his value focused approach. Marcus builds trust-based relationships with clients and, and expertly navigates objections to provide tailored solutions that address their most pressing needs and goals. I'm gonna stop there because he says a lot of this. And I really want you to go on the journey with us of what Marcus has learned and the system he's built and how he really sees the customer journey. It's so good, y'all. So you're gonna wanna sit down, you're gonna want a notebook, you're gonna wanna take it in um, and maybe even listen to it again. All the things. Let's go. Hello, Marcus. Thank you for joining me on Tea Time with Tech Marketing Leaders.
1: Hello. Thanks very much for having me, Kerry.
0: Oh, very excited to have you. I'm very excited to dig into our topic today. But before we get there, Marcus, why don't you tell our listeners your story? What do you do and how did you get there?
1: Essentially, today, I coach people to get out of their own way. We seem to spend a large amount of time uh, performing acts of self-sabotage and idiocy. Um, And I speak from a bitter personal experience. Um, having uh, made a hand fisted job of so many relationships and sales and uh, jobs. I thought um, I may as well turn that into a cash cow and I've become rather good at it um, because um, the the advantage of having failed a lot um, is not only empathy, but also recognizing the triggers and um, the symptoms and it's important to separate an understanding of the symptoms versus causes. So a, a lot of people think that the sale is the objective. It's not. It's a symptom. The, you know the, the, the result that I want is a customer whose job gets done as a direct result of their involvement with me. But I, I, my part is to help them execute that job. Um, they have to be the hero. And so a huge amount of what I do is teaching people to reflect and recognize the effect that they have. What you, you know, How you show up is pro- uh, reflected back on how you project out. Um, so if you want people to trust you, you have to lead with trust. You have to trust them. Um, if you want people to be vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable first. If you want people to get your needs met, you have to get their needs met first. And none of the way most businesses and traditional sales and management work um, or even marketing is conducive to that because uh, everything is hurry, hurry, hurry. And if you want to speed up, slow down. Um, If you want to get lots and lots of business, be patient. Um, If you want to sell to people, have them buy from you and stop selling to them. So that that's kind of where I, I got there by failing a lot. So that's basically the backstory, I think.
0: <laughs> I think that's so important, though, especially the whole piece about, and we're going to get into this more because I think it lends itself to the conversation. But this idea of right now hmm. and needing it yesterday, and it's like, yes, I, yes. Uh, However, unless you've taken the steps ahead of time to build those foundational elements towards those ultimate goals, you, you can't just turn it on. It sounds marketing and sales is not a switch. Well, I mean, it, you can be and it can be lucky and occasionally
1: it works like lucky. that and that gives the illusion um, that that's how things work. Um, but it, it's like people doubling down on workload. Um, When things that get tough, you know, everyone's told, you know, you've got to work harder. I I think, thanks to that, um, what you need to do is you need to uh, think, well, is there a better way? When when I look at marketing and I look at sales and their motions have 97 to 99% and north of that failure rates, and that is considered to be good practice, Email, direct email, um, cold calling. You know, I mean, in order to get through to someone cold calling today, uh, sorry, this is out of date data. This was 2020 um, with 80 million cold calls as the statistical base. Okay, so it's pretty reliable. Um, It took 33 to 46 dial attempts to get through to someone on the list and 14 of those conversations to get invited in once to a meeting And on average, salespeople fail seven out of eight times to secure a second meeting because they showed up and they were selfishly self-orientated, delivered zero value, or they spilt their guts and they basically wet their powder. So the other people, uh, the buyer, decided there's no point taking this conversation any further. I know where to go if I need it.
2: Yeah. Now, that waste is offensive to me. In what way?
1: Well, why would I want to spend $92 to attract a lead and only $1 to get them over the line? Why would I want to spend all my money on the thing that generates 18% gross profit instead of 1,150% average gross profit? Um, Why would I want to sweat? uh, Why would I want to put my salespeople under so much pressure that they are stressed to the point where um, 60% of sales managers have a health-threatening, stress-related condition. And salespeople are going out with their prefrontal cortex being switched off, which means that language, i.e. they get tongue-tied, the thing that they do the, their job, you know, speaky bit, okay, uh, is hampered. Um, it affects language, reason, and logic, and then you put them in front of customers where you tell the salesperson, you better bring it home or else. Um, and putting the buyer under pressure triggers a bit of the brain called the insular succumbens, which is where, which emotions reside.
2: Uh, Spider flight, right?
1: Oh, no, no, no. Worse. Mm-hmm. Disgust and contempt. Oh.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So get, if you're listening and you are a leader, of any shape or form. In finance, you're an investor, you're a founder, you're a CEO, you're a CRO, you're a CMO. Pay heed. When you put your salespeople under pressure, you make them less effective. When you put them in front of a buyer and you try and bring forward a deal or you try and accelerate the deal because of your lack of pipeline and your desire to meet a valuation target, chances are, you will put the buyer into ghosting mode because right. wherever there is uncertainty, the default setting to the, for the human brain is the worst case scenario. Chicken little. Yes. Yeah. The sky's falling. Sky falling. Absolutely. Okay. Now, is that your intention? And if you are an investor and you have general partners who are trying to create the conditions where they are creating that kind of psychological and physiological shift in your salespeople, I would be going back to them very angry and saying, what on God's earth do you think you are doing with my asset? And how dare you squander it so? But maybe that's just me. I want to keep going, but
0: I don't want to keep going because – you know, the next piece of this feels very much like this all sounds well and good, Marcus, but like, this also sounds really hard and it is definitely a mental shift, which we are, don't worry listeners, we're gonna help you understand. Before we get there though, Marcus, let's talk about a challenge you're currently facing right now. Cause we're all human and life is hard and and uh, it's nice to know we're not alone. And tyranny of, up against Ty-
1: tyranny of choice, tyranny of choice. I've got a lot of experience and I've got able to do a lot of things. Um, telling people about that is the kiss of death. If you ever want to make a living, if you want to be poor and have skinny kids, tell them about all the things that you can do. So I've had to, since I left my franchise um, a couple of years back, bloody hell, nearly three years. How did that happen? Um, So uh, Mind blown, sorry. Um, So since I left the franchise, I did a couple of years as a fractional CRO and realized, honestly, I don't want to manage people. I I love helping people, but what I don't want to do is spend the day-to-day managing up mainly um, because a lot of founders, sorry if I worked with you, uh, it was mainly my fault, um, but most founders are adolescents trapped in middle-aged bodies. Um, And the problem with having um, a slightly temperamental, uh, overly emotional teenager, especially first-time founders, is they don't generally know their ass from their elbow. Um, And they're convinced of their own brilliance, and they have a tendency to fall into traps around their heuristics, um, which can be quite expensive for them, um, and it's a waste of everyone's time. So um, what I've realized is that what I want to do is work with people um, who are principled, um, and they love the whole process of selling because they see it as the most noble thing that you can possibly do in business. So selling is about helping people to identify what their real problem is and then find ways to solve it, whether it involves you or not. And this is hard because you have to have the intellectual humility uh, to admit that you don't know everything um, and be ready to, for the buyer to not buy from you, and to be okay with that. Because if you're long-term selfish, you know that if you've treated them right, human beings, we're social primates, okay? Reciprocity, service is wired into us. The problem is that over the last two, 300 years with the Industrial Revolution, we've developed these um, uh, systems of competition which is you carry a sharp knife and trust no one. And it's all me, me, me. It's very entitled and only a few win. And the last 40 years or so, we've seen that explode uh, as private equity and venture capital really managed to take, that, take uh, hold. Then um, you've got this next level, which is where
2: um, you've got a shift generationally uh, and if
1: you haven't studied it or looked into it look into something called spiral dynamics if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs Mm -hmm. it's the next level of thinking up from that and the basic idea is that you can take the competencies and the ideas and understanding from the levels below and you can see one level above you clearly and two levels vaguely Anything above that is just well beyond your comprehension. And um, it explains in my head, at least, why we have uh, the uh, East versus West conflict, why we have um, uh, the left versus right, why we've ended up polarized as we have in society. Now, when you understand that context, as a marketer, as a product developer, as a seller, as an investor, as a business owner, a business uh, whatever, um, it allows you to think as your customer. And I think what's really, really exciting at the moment is the arrival of these AIs. Um, and what I'm able to do with ChatGPT compared with what I was capable of doing three months ago has blown my mind. And I was already pretty excitable. Um, you know, today, uh, in three hours, four hours, I'm running a program with my neuroscientist pal Moe Ramin, and we're looking at how to unpack and decode your bias psychology using ChatGPT, and we're starting with you. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to unpack your own psychology, and we're going to give you some frameworks for you to play with. And these are guided practices. So it's not us doing it, it's you doing it. And what's so exciting is all of a sudden people's eyes open up because they suddenly think, oh, my God, I had no idea. Then you plug into a tool like Crystal Nose, which is a little LinkedIn plugin that looks at people's personality and communication style. Well, how can you maybe make use of that? Well, you suck that data out and you put it into ChatGPT. And then you put it in with any recent uh, pronouncements from the CFO or the CEO, um, and you start to pass that language through it. And before you know it, you've now got um, a framework. And if you use, if you ask the right prompts, you can have it deliver content, nuanced content, based on the tone of the buyer. I mean who would not want that sort of play i mean if you're serious about selling or marketing wow
0: yeah and that level of personalization you know we've talked about how hard that level of personalization is and how much time that takes to even build the personalization out and get in front of people and then and then how you scale that which is circling perfectly into the conversation i want to have i know blow mind blown.
1: Sorry, I'm spilling my water all over my hand because I'm getting so excited. I
0: to, I'm, with I'm with you. I'm with you, Marcus. So, in terms of let's let's break this down a little bit. We're talking about persona. You're basically talking about personas.
1: Well, partly it, personas, one part. Partly. Of it.
0: Yeah, context uh, is
1: really important.
0: Yeah. So let's pull up from that for a second and just describe the customer journey. Right. So because <laughs> that's getting into this a bit this is a part this is a part of the customer journey a very small part i would say given how okay. lengthy so for you in in your experience Marcus what does the customer journey mean for you
1: okay i'm going to do this with a metaphor and um i'm stealing this absolutely from colin shaw and uh, his eg- exceptional podcast he's fantastic um but this is the uh, mcdonald's customer journey from the perspective of a mcdonald's employee Someone drives up to the squawk box, places their order, drives forward, taps their card, drives forward, picks their food, drives off. The real customer journey. For those of you who have children, this will become familiar. Eventually, you crack. You pile the little blighters into the back of the van. You buckle them up. You're driving through heavy traffic. It's lunchtime. It's on a Saturday. Um, there's traffic. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? World War Three is breaking out. They're fighting. Shut up. Um, you get to the back of the queue. There are 12 cars in front. Um, as you crawl forward, I'm
2: <laughs> yeah, Anyway,
1: it's about 97 decibels, the equivalent of a jet engine, as it's just warming up at the taxi. Um, then... Um, You finally get to about two um, cars from the order um, and you make sure you get their order. Then you drive forward. And someone who's speaking English is probably their fourth or fifth language is trying to take your order. They've probably got a Ph.D. from Aleppo University in chemical engineering. But life has thrown them a, a bit of a googly. Now they're trying to take your order with your kids screaming in the back. And one of them's a vegetarian, so you know that's a hard piece of shit. Um, and then you've got to wait. But wait for it. Then they change their mind. So you're not entirely sure, but you think, oh, enough, and you drive forward. And the best bit of the whole piece is the walletectomy, where you tap your card and your money goes out of your account seamlessly. It's the only painless bit of the whole piece Then you drive forward. Now, if you've got the vegetarians, you know, you're probably going to have to wait. If you don't have vegetarians, you're worrying about, do I check or do I drive off? Because there's 16 cars around the corner and you're feeling all that social pressure. Then you drive off. And before you know it, you have to detour to A&E because one of them is currently um, sporting a chip up the nose um, and uh, the other one's vomited uh, milkshake. Meanwhile, after the a and you then have to have the car cleaned out and you have to recycle the packaging. That's the buyer's journey. Now, the problem is your buyer's journey is really like that because no matter how you introduce it, my favorite model is Bob Mester's model, um, from, uh, and it's M-O-E-S-T-A. Bob Mester was an um, uh, apprentice to W. Edwards Deming the guy who turned Japan around and was responsible for the Kaizen philosophy. Um, His last of four mentors was Clay Christensen, who's the father of jobs to be done theory and design thinking. Okay. Um, So you can rely on Bob. He's got 5,000 patented products to his name as an engineer. And his problem was he couldn't sell the damn things. So he had to reverse engineer the process, which he's done. His podcast Hashtag JTBD is fantastic. Not doing many of them, but the mattress interview comes in two parts. It is a must read for anyone in business, in sales, in marketing and product development. Must, must, must. And CS. You have to listen to those two interviews. Now, the buyer's journey starts with making space. Oh, shit, I've got a problem. What is it? Oh, why is this happening? Huh? Okay, they're confused, they don't know what the hell's going on. So that now they make space for it. And they start to move into passive looking. Now, in passive looking, what's happening is they're learning how. In passive looking, they're going to webinars, they're going to YouTube, they're going to speak to their friends, they're downloading white papers. They're sharing white papers. They're asking questions of people. They're joining WhatsApp communities, Discord communities. They're on Facebook groups. Now, the first thing that this raises, or what, what's the question as an owner and as a marketer that that litany has just raised in your head? What do
2: you, what do you mean the litany
1: of okay, Well, Like what's uh, next? Okay, let me ask a better or... question. Okay, as the owner of a business and a seasoned marketer, what opportunities does that represent just that passive looking stage?
0: Uh, It it does a couple things. It provides ongoing value, Um, it builds relationships because you're showing up with the value of what they need and you're building trust as well because, yeah, because you're, Yeah, it's relationship and trust building without actually ever having to talk to them and giving them, you're putting them in the driver's seat, making decisions and learning more.
1: Absolutely. So let me share with you the trust equation developed by Charlie Green. Okay, so he wrote the book, The Trusted Advisor, and a book everyone must read, two books everyone must read, Bob Mester's Demand Side Sales, which makes you think as the customer. Okay, Um, and then trust based selling. Now, Charlie came up with the trust equation. Trust equals credibility. That means you can do what you say you can do. Plus reliability. You do it. Who knew? Plus intimacy. Now, intimacy is the most important operator in this equation. But let me repeat it. So trust equals credibility plus reliability plus intimacy over self-orientation okay not about you it's not about you it's about them but it has to be about you eventually but this is what we mean by being long-term selfish yeah yeah we eventually get our needs met by helping our customer get their needs met and helping them execute on the job they have to get done Every business has a job to be done. When you understand what that job is, everything makes sense. If you are part of a private equity portfolio, forget what the original job to be done was, which was to serve customers by specific people solving specific problems. Now you serve the bigger job to be done, which is the valuation target. Because what the general partners care about is raising the next fund yeah yeah that's the job to be done when you understand that every act of idiocy and cruelty that they inflict that causes people's brains to switch off and causes customers to respond with disgust and contempt and delay the sale and reduce performance is driven by the job to be done because the idiots at the top aren't thinking about the outcome they're thinking about their outcome and thinking as, as if it matters instead of is it, as if it is the symptom, which it is. And I'll give you right. two examples. Sorry, right. um,
0: Let me just make sure I'm clear. So our, our outcome of sellers is the need to sell the thing. But if we can think about the buyer's need and their final outcome and work to meet that, the sale will naturally happen
1: yeah. over time. The sale is a symptom. That's exactly what I mean. You're 100% on the money. Now, the problem problem is that when um, we are trying to be selfish and self-orientated, we forget that that isn't why other people come to work. For those of you who have staff, do you think that your employees come to work With the express intent of making you richer no do you think they come to work in order to increase the value of your stock when you haven't given them any no do you think they come to work to pay their bills to feed their children to put a roof over their head and clothes on their back and go on holiday do you think they give a damn about your desire to drive an Aston Martin um, or to uh, acquire another company. Well, what if maybe you started with their level of engagement and why they come to work and you cared about their motivation? So let me give you the example. The S&P 500 was studied by Gallup between 2010 and 2016. And they looked at employee engagement as the core metric now. Obviously, Gallup has an axe to grind on this, so you may look at it as partisan. However, what they did was they compared annual compound share price growth. They looked at um, absenteeism, sickness, and turnover. They looked at revenue per employee and profit per employee and productivity per employee. Okay, And what they found was in companies that had highly engaged employees, Those employees produced 500% more profit per employee, 120% higher revenue per employee, 20% higher daily productivity per day, 40% lower turnover, and wait for it, over five years, uh, 316% annual compound share price growth compared with average to uh, low engagement uh, companies. Now, in what possible universe is it in the investor's best interest where we claim that we represent the you know, all businesses exist to represent shareholder value? Um, where you increase the costs, you reduce the probability of conversion, you create churn, 15% churn rate, bear in mind, means you have to replace 50% of your customers every three years. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um Profitable customers are expansion customers. In SaaS, Bank SaaS did a study in 2019. And and the Bank SaaS study says that new business generates 18% gross profit, upsells 170% gross profit, expansion sales, 1,150% profit. Now, I'm lazy, inherently, intrinsically bone idle. If I can take doing sod all to an art form, I will, okay? But I want the outcome. So the question going through my head always is, is there a better way? How can I do less but better on purpose? How can I get paid double for half the work? Now, these to me seem perfectly reasonable questions. As someone who is inherently lazy, it's a good thought but i still want the outcome. I want a good future. I want to be able to provide. Now, the easiest way to do this is by not finding or creating friction needlessly. So what is it sellers and marketers do to create friction? Well, if we go back to the buyer's journey, they go from passive looking to, um, sorry, from making space to passive looking, then they go from passive to active looking. They've learned how, now they're exploring their options. This is when, for the first time, they are ready to have a sales conversation. But how often is your marketing premature trying to book a meeting, it's trying to secure someone's interest in a conversation, when really all they want to do is gather information? And so you create pressure needlessly.
0: Are you saying that happens in the passive-looking space or even in the active-looking space, they're still trying to really to book a meeting?
1: Uh, well, in the, in the active-looking space, they will be open to it, but only exactly. you get away from being a feature function monkey, which is what most salespeople mm-hmm. are. I remember I was commissioned to uh, write a, a framework for um, a massive uh, manufacturer of um, hardware. And they rejected it because it wasn't about the product. Now, the problem was they had a 2% conversion rate and they wanted to increase it, but they wanted the pitch to be all about the product. No one buys product, people pay for and rent outcomes. They never buy anything outright. I may love an Aston Martin and the consumption and adoption and satisfaction levels are through the roof. If I've got elderly parents, it's no use when I have to take them into my home. And now I need something that can take their wheelchairs. Astons are not known for that. No. Even even their, what's it, MPV or whatever it is. Um, they probably don't have an MPV, do they? They've got um, a, a Chelsea tractor. Now, now, yeah. You know, the, the challenge is that we have to understand where the buyer is on their buying journey and meet them where they are. Not where we want them, where we wish they were. So in that active looking, they will take a call, but we have to enter their workflow, enter the world that they occupy in a way that makes us different. That means getting them to talk about their problems. Because the minute you make it about you, the guard goes up.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Name me 10 salespeople you trust. (laughs) Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. Uh,
0: yeah, the list is very, uh, very
1: Okay, uh, and uh, for those of you just listening on audio, Kerry just closed her cardigan up. Now, I know she was complaining about the cold earlier, uh, but that <laughs> is a subconscious response when people <laughs> get defensive. Okay, so again, you look for these clusters of behaviors. And again, salespeople don't learn to read the situation. And in the situation, when people are 15 to 20% of the way through active looking yeah. they switch off about the product and features and functions and talking about their pain at that point is only going to cause them to ghost you yeah do you know 60% of buying cycles end up in no decision yes
2: it's so and painful. 52% yes.
1: of those are caused by the seller being an ass.
2: give us some they- examples of what
0: quote-unquote being an ass means in, in that, you know, on those calls and that active list? Is it just simply talking about features and making it about yourself
1: or? It's, it's- two things. They, the first thing is you ratchet up the features and benefits and you remind them of this brilliant better future. They've already got that in their head. They know it. The other thing you do is you remind them of their pain. They already know
2: that too. What are they doing about 15 to 20 percent of the way through? It, of the call or of the... Of the buying the, cycle.
0: Of the buying so they, cycle. So they're now oh, in active so looking. They're,
1: red, they're, they're considering buying. They're, they're actively looking. They're speaking to vendors. But about yeah. 50 to 20% of the way through, something happens.
2: Well, they want to know that you're going to take their pain away. Yeah, and? And What's you have the experience it? doing it. What if? What if they, they don't trust? What do you mean? Like, what? <laughs> what if
1: it goes wrong? Can I trust Kerry? Does Kerry have my back? Is she more interested in my success or her success? Uh, what are her bosses like? I'll give you a great example. Um, a, client i was working with was in the enablement function in a very very large software company and one of the challenges that he faced was his salespeople were going out and getting to final stage and the then the buyers were saying you know we're not sure we're going to go ahead because we don't trust your company oh yes yeah. million dollar deals plus And the problem is the CFO won't take it any further because they don't trust the company. About 15 to 20% of the way through any major purchase, the buyer is thinking what will go wrong. And without certainty, the default setting of the brain, speak to your neuroscientist friends, look it up, look up, chat GPT, ask. The default setting of the brain is worst case scenario. That's the baseline. So we have to preempt all of that. Now, think again, back to my earlier bad question, what opportunity does this open up way earlier in the buying journey for us to preempt all of this stuff? Because our job, I believe, is to know where the buyer is likely to be on their buying journey, what their struggling moments are going to be, and provide them with safety by being there, turning up, providing them with tools, preempting all of this stuff. So every time they hit a snag, bloody hell, Kerry, wow. (laughs) This is why you focus on the medium term. You don't focus on the short term. If you're focusing on the short term, 3% of your market will buy. If you focus on the medium term, you're getting
2: about 40%. So when you're talking about that trust, you know, the trust needs to happen in that
0: passive looking, you mentioned that, and you're saying that around the 30% 30 mark through the buying journey, people bail because you haven't built that trust in that passive looking space. Even sooner,
1: again, remember the trust equation is trust is credibility plus reliability plus intimacy over self-orientation. There is another very, very powerful equation Um, which was developed by my pal and partner, Daryl Stickle. And it is vulnerability times uncertainty equals perceived risk. Now, think about that. If your number one job is to make sure that the other person does not perceive you as a threat and Your number one job is to make sure that they feel safe whenever they think of or engage with you. How would that alter your approach in terms of outbound, outreach, marketing, content?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's exactly
0: where my brain went. I'm trying to figure out how do you trust comes with relationship building and And you can do that to a certain extent with content, for sure, in terms of case studies and examples and um, putting out how to guides to showcase how I tell my team this all the time. Like, you don't have a secret sauce. Like, let's be real in that there isn't people want to understand that, you know, what you're doing if they're they don't want it because they're going to take it and go do it. And if they are, then great, more power to them. But at the end of the day, we need to showcase that we know what we're doing and build that trust with them through that way. And so, you know, content for sure up front and doing that for sure. But on the long run, which I think is where you're going you're gonna to go to next, you know, that the, the rest of that buyer's journey is that relationship building one-on-one, right? In terms of like the people so, you the, buy exactly. from.
1: The buyer's journey doesn't end at the decision and the first transaction or first use, because The buyer's journey um, at the decision point, now they're making trade-offs. So when you bought your house, you were deciding, do we need five bedrooms or four? Do we need a second bathroom? Uh, What sort of access routes do we need to transportation, to schools, to shops? Um, Are we gonna bring uh, elderly relatives over? If we are, uh, do we need to factor that in? Um, How old are the kids now? How do we use the space? Um, You know, is this going to be convenient? Can I, whilst I love, you know, the wood paneling, can I be bothered with having to woodworm it every five years? Yeah, these are all trade-offs. Now, what you do is you take stuff away from the overall pot and what you're left with is a compromise. Now, this then brings us to something else that's really, really important. What you and I operate in worlds of wicked problems. The problem that I see is that most people try and solve wicked problems with simple point solutions, and that doesn't work. So if you have an imperfect system that's found an unhappy equilibrium, but it's working, sort of, and you limp along and it sort of totters, if you keep poking it, by adding more layers of complexity and adding yet another piece of technology and adding more process and changing stuff without thinking about the end game and working backwards, then what you end up doing is just creating, you know, when you've got an old spinning top and you keep Mm -hmm. poke, poke, poke or a gyroscope and after a while it falls over. Now it might bounce back up again, but then it'll fall over again. Well, the same thing happens when you don't look at the bigger picture. Wicked problems can be defined by four criteria. The first is whatever you try first doesn't work. And in startups, they're typically a series of hopefully non-fatal experiments, yeah? Mm -hmm. The second is the stakeholders differ. They come in and out, they drop in, they drop out, they change their minds, they have differing opinions
2: the rules change as you go yeah yeah nothing and they're worse than having perfect. being in the
0: middle of a deal with one person for them to then leave and being
1: haired off
0: and having to basically start over
1: exactly I, I taught people to sell aircraft carriers it took them five years to get to nowhere and six months to get it over the line when they stopped faffing and started understanding what they were trying to do. Uh, a power mine um, sold six battleships to the Department of Defense in 14 minutes.
2: Is that he because for
1: shipbuilders? That because he understood that the reason the admiral was talking to them was he wanted battle-ready battleships. And they built their proposition from backwards from that. Who wants a hunk of metal that costs you $2.5 billion stuck there as a sitting duck with 1,200 lives on board and 80 aircraft and six other ships? No one. What you want is a battle-ready battleship that within 24 hours is going to be ready uh, and seaworthy again, no matter where it is in the world, even if it's near hostile territory.
2: That's a huge yeah. that's a huge proposition. Like
1: that's a, but that's thinking as the customer, not thinking right. as a selfish investor. right So people don't come to me for training and coaching. No one's ever bought coaching from me because they wanted coaching. They wanted a better future. And if they weren't certain I could provide it, there was no way they were buying it from me. Because the level of intimacy, the depth that we go into is deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And you have to be motivated to want that outcome to go through that pain. Yeah. Coaching is a journey. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's fun for both sides, but it's bloody scary.
0: It's It's a lot of work. scary for me as well, because I don't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So now they've gone through the decision and they've made the trade-offs first use was my anticipated buyer's remorse justified and have I made a terrible mistake and how do I get out of this is there a cooling off period how do I get out what do I have to do oh god who's going to judge me yeah yeah so that's the reality that this is all part of the buyer's journey now, this is all anticipated earlier on when they've ghosted you because you put pressure on them because your boss was an ass. Yeah. You see what I mean by the example? Yeah. Okay. And then ongoing use, because if first use doesn't match expectation, okay, then ongoing use isn't going to happen. You don't get the habit and the expansion sales. But this all comes back down to one thing, which is clarity. Which happens right at the beginning, why do we exist, and for whom? Because if you don't understand that and you can't
2: answer that question, what the hell are you in business for? I think it's important though, what you said though is that you got to work backwards, yeah, you have what to work my book. Have- we wrote the conclusion that- first yeah,
0: that battle that battleship example is so. On the nose, like I mean, you can't get a better tagline than that. And then to to be able to back it up with with the systems and processes to actually show up to wherever you need to show up and actually do what you need to do, It's just sort of mind boggling. But so clarity, yes, yes, clarity. So
1: just to, just easy. to confirm again, we we've got um uh, making space, passive looking, active looking, um deciding. First use, ongoing use. Now, as they're going through that process, remember, especially the more money that is involved, the more impactful the decision, the more scrutiny and the more judgment this human being will be sensing and feeling. Now, depending on where this human being is on the spectrum of giving a damn or not giving a damn that will dramatically affect the decisions they use, uh, they make and how we have to communicate and how we as sellers have to show up. The beauty is, sorry, go on. Sorry.
0: I just quick question that quick. These questions are never quick because you're so deep and you have so much knowledge and it's amazing. You mentioned that there's huge fall off in ghosting. You've mentioned that a couple times and the ghosting okay. part from my understanding generally happens from what you said between the active looking and the deciding piece so yeah, right
1: early in the active looking stage yeah and
0: that's the because we're problem is pressure. the, 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 well, the, the problem is the problem
1: is in the in that stage the seller is often listening with happy ears and so they're keeping the um the uh deals alive um basically they're on life support And you see this, this isn't a very PC, uh, so you may want to cut this bit out. Um, But if you think about it, um, when the pipeline is bad, it either looks like a pencil, because there's nothing in it, or it looks like an old pair of gray granny knickers, okay? It's saggy at the top, baggy in the middle, and there's a lot of very unpleasant stuff in the gusset. Um, Now, what you want is a thong. It needs to be wide at the top with rapid early disqualification. And then what is left is high quality uh, prospects, none of whom may be necessarily buying immediately. But you've got this middle of the funnel that you're tickling. And that's where the bulk of my effort goes, the middle of the funnel, not the top and not the bottom. Because if I focus on the medium term and I focus on the middle of the funnel, then what I'm doing is I'm always focusing on advancing the buyer's understanding of their problem. And how they may solve this, uh, solve it. Okay. Because the, it needs to come from them. The more it comes from them, the less they will argue with the data. People don't argue with stuff they've made up and yeah, so, they're heuristic. It's sorry. Go on.
0: Let's let's give people some tactics to really feel like they can go do something with this. Cause this has been so immensely helpful. And I love how we're sitting right now in where, the most opportunity is for folks which is in this middle of the funnel piece that yeah and where people are really losing so when you're talking about advancing the problem and getting them to talk more to you is what it sounds like right you're not talking at them you're inviting them in to tell you more essentially is that what Absolutely. I'm understanding so the, the tactic
1: the the opening tactic is Kerry I'm sensing that I'm running ahead of you Um, I I feel that you're on chapter four and uh, sorry, I'm on chapter four and you're still on uh, the the introduction. Um, Can we just wind this back a little bit? There's a reason you're hesitating. Do you mind telling me what that is? Okay, and there's a very good book called The Jolt Effect by Matt Dixon. And I can't remember the name of the other authors, but um, uh, they've done the research. And in fact, my partner, um, Moeed, has done very similar research, which uh, supports this too. Um, And he's interviewed, I think, 428 senior uh, executives. And what they found is around 20 percent of the way through, they're catastrophizing about what can go wrong. And what they need is someone to uncover what that unstated fear is and then talk them through how it can be addressed or give them an out. You have to be ready to take a no but, and you have to be ready to give a no because if it's not right for the customer, you have no right to sell it to them. I said earlier that selling should be the most noble thing you do in business. Well, selling is helping other people get their needs met. Our job is to enter into their world, find out where they are and the context in which they have to operate and help them make the best decision for themselves today and in the future, whether it involves me or not.
0: I want to end it there because I just you normally I sum it up, but I feel like you just did a beautiful job of that, and I'm not going to step all over it. It's absolutely perfect. I'm so grateful that you joined me, Marcus, and I think this conversation is so important. And I hope people reach out to you to learn more about how you help sellers because I run into it all the time. It's why I, you know, wrap myself up tight in my you know, every time a salesperson reaches out to me, I I cringe. It's like you said, right? It's It's like you have to
1: wash afterwards.
0: It's so unusual that you run into sellers who really just want to help out and really care. And it's not about them trying to make their goals, right? Um, Let let, let
1: me just give one story of how this works, okay? Um, My uh, client, Adam, is a a new sales leader. And he sells capital equipment into FMCG, food manufacturers, that kind of thing and they have not had a new product in eight years. Um, Adam and I have been working together seven, eight months, and uh, he bought into this philosophy. He's ex-military, he went for um, uh, special forces training, so he's got real drive and uh, he's got a real um, ethic, a- ethical code. However, um, when he was in the role, he was a fantastic individual contributor. Um, and he worked really hard and he did all the right things. He got promoted and he discovered that the job of being a manager is very different. And um, now he managed through really driving people hard to get 6% growth. And the industry average was 3%. So he was doing well this year with the industry average at 3%. He's at 28% growth. Every one of his people, is at or above quota. The CFO came in three weeks ago and said, Adam, if it wasn't for the fact you were so far ahead of budget, I'd wonder what the hell you do because you seem to just swan around the office drinking coffee. Now, the point being, he's paying him for the outcome, not for looking busy. Okay. And he, Adam has now instituted a policy that's almost a sackable offense if you put your customer under pressure to buy. Now, here's the story. They had a deal, and it was a big deal, with a bottling company. Um, and it had gone quiet, ghosted. And Adam phoned the CFO and uh, arranged a call to talk about his concerns. And it, was, it had gone well enough. And what Adam did was that there was something that the CFO wasn't quite saying. So he said, look, why don't we do this? Let's extend the trial for two months at our cost. So no cost to you. And then at the end of that, you can decide whether we pull the equipment or you uh, go ahead and you roll it out.
2: And at that point, the CFO just stopped.
1: And there was a physiological shift, and I've taught Adam to spot this sort of stuff. And he said... There's something that I've said or done or failed to say or do that's causing you to hesitate. Do you mind telling me what that is? About four years ago, we tried a similar solution. And when we did, it caused micro fractures in the bottles and we had to withdraw um, 4 million pounds. I really don't want that to happen again. I don't want that kind of reputation damage. Now, that's all it took. He signed up for five years and he signed a five-year renewal paid up front. Biggest deal in the $3 billion businesses company history. Because he treated someone as a human being and bothered to try and understand what was really the agenda, what was the job to be done. And what he wanted was the ability to print labels on his bottles without micro fractures because it's expensive and it's embarrassing because CFOs, top priorities, protect against external risks, number one. That's why they're so hot on regulation and compliance. Number two, capital protection. Make sure we don't end up worse off than we started. Number three, growth. And number four, find ways of mitigating the threat that human beings create because they're unreliable and emotional and disloyal.
2: What was the, what was the give though? Because he said, he said, he recognized there was a problem. So he
1: said, look, why don't we extend the trial for two more months and we'll cover the cost. So it's zero risk. And what he did, and this is why the other equation is really important. Vulnerability times uncertainty equals perceived risk everyone has a threat a risk threshold now this is this is one to end on okay if you have two prospects one of whom you can reduce their risk from 3 to 0 or one of whom you can reduce their risk from 100 to 50 which is the one i would put all of my i would put my house on would buy
2: or three to zero, you've reduced the risk
1: to nothing. That's exactly it. Our job is risk removal, not risk reduction. Now, as a seller, if you can remove the sense of risk, because every time you have done something that serves them first, you turn up, you're timely, you're relevant, you're valuable consistently, you share confidences. You tell people when you've got some intel about a competitor of theirs. You do your research. You think like the tip tiller, and you're planning ahead. You're always two, three, four, five steps ahead, and you're meeting them where they are. And you go, oh, hi, lovely to see you here. Oh, bloody hell, it's you again! Everyone else is left in the dust. I don't want to have to sell. I want people to rip my arm off when I'm selling partners. OK, when I'm looking for partners, I'm looking, what does Kerry already sell a lot of that she wants to sell more of? How do I help her sell five times more of that? Mm. There's no way you're not bringing me in. Right. If every time you bring me in, you 5x your order value and your sales cycle is half as long and you make 64 times the profit, what's the probability that I will be chained to your, chain to you? There's no way you will be my biggest source
2: of business. I'll never have to prospect again. Yeah, it's true. Oh, Marcus, this was so
0: helpful. I learned so much. I I felt like I was in a uh, educational space where I was being taught to. And that was just, I'm so grateful before we, before we leave here, you're more than a salesperson. You're more than a coach. We'd like to learn a bit more about you. Three quick questions. The first one is, have you picked up any new hobbies in the last few years, given the change of the world?
1: Um, well, I've recently gone through a bit of a health kick, and I'm uh, working with uh, a coach, a uh, functional medicine practitioner called Amal Ismail, who is uh, married to and was introduced to me by Moed Amin, my um, uh, neuroscience partner. Uh and, um, I've lost 20 kilos. Um, I've started walking, and I'm toying with the idea of going to the gym eventually. Um, but um, that's one thing. Um, the AI has really got my got me going, because um, I use it as a foil. My favorite prompt is disagree with me. It's just so cool. You know, uh, two years ago, I learned that. Go out and find people who disagree with you. Now I've got this machine that can disagree with everything um you know it, it's like being um you know uh, having my teenage children uh, on my shoulder constantly saying you're being an asshole and um, so it, it forces my humility um so i'm hoping to take up photography again because i did used to love it but then um, they're very heavy yeah
0: <laughs> yeah the good cameras are yeah it's true the lenses uh,
1: well, unless I buy a Leica, which in, me, in which case, um, they're, they're very light, but they're exceptionally yes. expensive. I had some mortgage.
2: Yes.
0: We'll so look, if you get back two. into it, I'd love to see your photos. Um, well, I, I, I
1: did some at the weekend, so I'll I'll, um, I'll put them up for you. So. Awesome. We did the bluebell. Um,
0: oh, amazing. You know, I'm going to leave it there because, yeah. yes, I, I love that you have these hobbies. I love that you're digging into them. And yes, if you, I want to see your photos, that sounds amazing. And I'll, and I'll uh, link, I'll maybe throw one or two into our blog post Cause that sounds awesome. Marcus, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: That was my conversation with Marcus Crocky. You may have noticed that I wasn't actually talking a whole lot. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. Sometimes that bites me because people get on a roll and they'll sort of ramble. I didn't feel like Marcus was doing that. I felt like I was in a lecture hall, like a really glorious, wonderful lecture hall where this professor was standing up there and telling me all these wonderful stories. And I was just captivated. I could not stop. He caught me off guard when he asked me questions because I was like, oh, it's my turn. I was just so enthralled with what you were saying. I didn't know you were going to ask me a question right there. So so yeah, tell me more. I took notes upon notes, five pages. I learned so much. So here was my my clear takeaways. The In terms of the buyer's journey, having it clearly laid out in terms of making space, passive looking, active looking, Deciding first use and ongoing use was just, I've never heard it so clearly, but also so descriptive. It really shows us how we can show up from a marketing and sales perspective in each one. Oh, I'm so excited to like go create content now and to work backwards to really understand the challenges my audience is facing in this moment and what their their wicked problems are. So good. I hope you all feel inspired too. If you'd like to learn more from Marcus, you can reach out to him. His email is in the show notes, marcus at laughs-last.com. He's also offering to my audience specifically a webinar of six to eight companies for an Ask Him Anything. So if you're interested, if you fit Marcus's ICP, you have a complex, high value solution to mid-market and enterprise clients. If you have a complex, high value solution to mid-market and enterprise clients, please email Marcus at Marcus at last-last.com within the subject line, Tea Time with Tech Marketing Leaders webinar and let him know why you're interested and maybe some initial questions you have and then he can narrow it down to the 6 to 8 he feels like he can help the most um i highly recommend it he is a wealth of knowledge i even even before and after the conversation he was teaching me like there's so much knowledge he has in regards to sales and how to do it better and how to do it for the long run and how to build and cultivate thoughtful relationships to help your clients. So good. Marcus, I'm so grateful. Thank you for joining me. And thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please like, subscribe, and share. Share it. Oh my gosh, share it. Everybody needs to hear it. I, Let's change the way selling happens and let's make it more human and more engaging and in a way that we all wanna work and help each other out. Yes to all of this. This episode was brought to you by MKG Marketing, the digital marketing agency that accelerates the mission of cybersecurity brands through SEO, digital ads, and analytics. It's hosted by me, Carrie Gard, CEO and co-founder of MKG Marketing. Music mix and mastering done by Austin Ellis. And if you'd like to be a guest, please visit mkgmarketing.com to apply.